This is one of those chats where we can start anywhere. So at this point, I'll ask Daryl Easley, what are you? Um, I'm a generalist. Excellent. So am I. You are, what, what is it, you're a passionate generalist, is your biography. Yes, and um, I only realised, I'd never heard the phrase generalist before until I worked at Record Collector magazine in the early 21st century. And there was a fabulous fellow there called Jack Kane, who's sadly no longer with us, but he edited the Rare Record Price Guide. And he was one of these sort of renaissance men of, of popular music writing that you, you, you come across from time to time. And because I love, genuinely love, and I'm very fortunate to know a lot about different sorts of music with an equal passion, he said to me one day, he said, oh, I get it easily. You're a generalist. And, you know, I, I love it. And long long may that reign, because whereas I completely admire, and I mean, I really do, people who plough a furrow and say, OK, I want to be a mod and Northern Soul or Heavy Metal and know everything about it. You know, I want to know all about that, but I also want to know about, you know, Philly Soul or Chart Pop or, you know, Prog Rock or, or whatever. All those things to me are fabulous. And the connection is... Engagement, I suppose. I was going to say intelligence, but that makes it sound like it's some sort of rarefied exercise. I think engagement, there's got to be something that tickles my fancy. And, you know, all the bands and all the artists uh, and all the writers I love have, have that little something that hooks me in and I, I can't get over it. And I love it. And that's why I love pop. And that has led you to a life of books and records and also <laughs> broadcasting. Before I forget, uh, M Means Music, which was a podcast via You Discover Music, uh, which yep. is, should be much, much better known, well, both you and You Discover Music. But these are, there was a short series this spring, and it started in the middle of last year, explaining why great albums are great. That, I can't believe that hasn't been done before, but uh, have you had good reactions to the episodes that you've done so far? Yes, I have. I, I, it's interesting because I, you know, one of the things of lockdown, I sort of devised that concept. They, they came to me knowing that, you know, I know about music, if you like, and I sort of devised it. I thought, well, what, how would you break this down? And I love a sort of, you know, a framework, if you like, so the, the, the five M's. With all these things, there are so many podcasts out there. You know, your one is wonderful, and it's such a great idea. Thank you very much. And, it, and it's how you, you get heard and things like that. And I'm just actually writing the next series at the moment. I start recording um, the week of the 5th. You know, again, I try and give people an understanding of even the most, you know, what may seem almost frothy pop, you know, all has... It's, it's roots and it's story and how these things fit. Um, and I think, you know, you, you see that there are 38 people in the world of pop music, really, and most of them know each other. Mm -hmm. uh, one of whom is um, Sir Nodwood, Noddy Holder, who I, I guess he's one of the 36 or 38 people, just because Slade have been there. Like Led Zeppelin, they were there before they got enormous. Uh, whatever oh, yeah. happened to Slade is a book that... Uh, I imagine it's time to coincide with the 50 years since the chart battle of 1973. It's out on Omnibus on September the 22nd. Um, 
we, we, we know what happened to Slade because you were with half of them the other week at an event that did that was that beamed around the world did you have people in it Brazil was, it was there were people watching in New Zealand and Australia and all that and um, for those that don't know I was speaking with um, Jim Lee and Don Powell uh, one of the great rhythm sections of pop but I think also one of the most overlooked rhythm section in pop because I think there's almost this shorthand that people think Slade were just a Christmas hit, you know, that, that sort of thing, and all good time stomping music. But actually, the musicianship is is phenomenal because this was a band that, as the in-betweens and their various bands beforehand, you know, they, they worked. They did their 10,000 hours. They bizarrely spent um, summer of 1968 in the Bahamas. They were booked into a hotel and then, they wouldn't let them leave because they hadn't paid their bill. Uh, and so they bonded as people and bonded as a band. And there's a new live box set coming out uh, called All the World's a Stage where you've got a concert of 1975 that's never been released before. And you hear it and it's like, Christ, it's Zeppelin, it's Purple, it's Thin Lizzy. You know, it's at that strength, that play, the, the, the ability to play. And I... You know, I've never been someone who goes, oh, yeah, it's a musicianship, man. You know, I, I don't care. I love the fall. You know, I don't care how you play. It's got to be what you're saying and how you feel it. But you listen to it and you think, my God, if you did a blind test on that, I don't think anyone would think it was Slade, just the, the power they had. And and Jim and Don absolutely fueled that. And certainly Jim. I mean, Jim was the, the musical brain within the group. Did that uh, show get put online was it just an ephemeral thing or is the video available to watch after the event i i think it might be now i know it was going to be i know there was a sort of you know give it a, a period for the exclusive for the mm. people that, that signed up to do it and the lovely thing was all the money was for the um wolverhampton art gallery where where it was and it because it's part of an exhibition called Black Country Beats, and there's a Slade room. Jim Lee has donated lots of stuff to it. Oh, wow. But there's also a fabulous, a popularly yourself room, should you care. Well, the two rooms that really tickled me was, was there was a sound system room where they had one of the great Birmingham sound systems, which sort of took up the whole side of, of, of this big gallery. And then they had a Bangra room. And, you know, who knew there was a Bangra Live Aid in a Birmingham Odeon in September 1985. Not me. That. Wow. No, that's right. Yeah, and and I always love bang. You know, I, I love music. I don't really know anything about because I do. He said modestly, know a lot about a lot of music. That whole genre. You know, I know bits of it, and I know bits where it fits. And you, every time I hear it, I just think I I just love this. I just absolutely love it. And there was a whole room dedicated to it. I've uh, never been to Wolverhampton, although I know that one of the most famous rock and roll stars is from there and is big on uh, his football team. Um, might as well call it when Watford oh, play Wolves, kind of yes. the, the, the football support of Derby. Elton, Elton yeah. and Robert Plant. Um, yeah, yeah. I must, before I do anything else, and we've got so many books and <laughs> catalogues to go through, you really are a jack of all trades, master of all, uh, Daryl <laughs> Easley. SFOB, Ship Full of Bombs. It's Southend's alternative radio station. You put together a yes. birthday special for Paul McCartney with requests coming in yes. from Matt Everett, Nick Haywood, Paolo Hewitt and many more. You also appeared on the Back to Now show discussing Now 43. You said every year throws up its Brian and Michaels. 
which uh, I love that reference. So do you play Brian and Michael on your shows on uh, Full of Bombs? No, I don't. I'm, I, I, you know, I, I have nothing against Brian and Michael per se, and it certainly taught me about L.S. Lowry. I mean, I think that marvellous thing about pop when we were kids, you know, they, they sent you in all these directions because, you know, what was that book by Nabokov and, and mm-hmm. who was well as uh, and all of that stuff. However... It's a pretty, uh, you know, my, my, my thoughts always mellow to records that I thought I didn't like when I was a kid, but that one still sticks in my craw a little. Yeah. But the yeah, Simpler Bombs, we, we set it up, it's been a decade now, and again, you know, that we were in at the sort of start of internet radio, and it's, it's always difficult because, you know, there are so many, coming back to podcasts, there are so many out there. But we built a really nice sort of global fan base in that way, and... You know, it's still to me where sometimes I just think, my God, I'm, 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 I, I can broadcast. You go to a studio or now, you know, lockdown taught us how to do it at home. And a listener in China will, will say, I'm loving what I'm listening to. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. How do you get to China? Um, yes, so I how do you get to China? China? Yes. Yes, I do a show called Darren Spectacular, which is uh, my sort of, you know, flagship if you like he said modestly but uh i've had will's been on there uh, will birch great um and lots of lovely guests and live performances and then i started in lockdown doing something called easy like a sunday morning which was just basically me coming into my studio here and playing some sort of you know some mellow tunes if you will and it's lovely because there is a real community that listen to it. And I feel like I'm some sort of, well, someone called me a, a, a socialist Steve Wright love song. Yeah. You know? So it's, yeah, it's fun. It's lovely. <laughs> dig, fun. dig the show, Daryl. Yes. Uh, SFOB.co.uk <laughs> for some alternative music. If you were to put together an hour of music by Slade, which yep. non-singles would we hear? So I, I want you to go into the deep cuts of the career of Slade and recommend kind of two or three. The second album they did called Play It Loud, which has a, a fabulous Gerard Mankiewicz picture of them all when they were doing their skinhead thing, that look, it, it, it sort of almost shows a sort of alternative Slade that if they'd taken that route and continued down there, I don't think they would have been as successful and as well-known, but they might be thought of more as, I don't know, the Groundhogs or mm-hmm. a Cabron band, something like that. Have a, have a lot of kudos with a sort of you know, select band of old people. There's a song in there called Dapple Rose, which, you know, because Don, the drummer, was actually a lyricist initially, before the sort of Noddy and Jim team came together. He wrote, and he wrote this song about a, a sort of, clapped out old horse that used to be in a field behind his house and again I just admire the fact that it wasn't just I love you baby let's go to the dance uh, that's on there there's also a song in there called Pook Hill uh, uh, P-O-U-K Hill and that's a hill in Warsaw you can actually see it when you're coming down the old M6 into um, Birmingham and on Slade's first album where they were called uh, Ambrose Slate, there's a picture of them all sort of semi-naked crawling up a hill. It was the 60s, man, you know. Mm-hmm. And and they're doing that. And this was at this place, Pook Hill, and they were freezing because it was like February or something and the photographer's doing it. And already, you know, they're writing a song about it, you know, a year less than a year later. 
mythologizing, you know, sort of self-mythologizing, if you like. And I think they are uh, incredible tracks. There's there's an album called Nobody's Fools, which was '76, where they sort of tried some new flavors, if you like, if I may use such mm. a terrible word in that context. But you know, it was the, the they desperately tried to break America, and they made an album over there, and it's got you know female backing vocals on it and things like that. So they were sort of broadened in their palette. But then finally the album they made when they came back called Whatever Happened to Slade, which is also the title of my forthcoming book, is like, Christ, they rocked. They brought it together. And you can see why they were sort of adopted by the the new wave of heavy metal community because it was like that album almost sort of foresees it all. And the irony was it was in 1977 and they couldn't get arrested. You know, they, they had basically been, certainly had their hand on the tiller of punk there was no question about it and you know well you know the tile was so sort of ironic but they knew you know they then went down to audiences of 300 500 you know whatever playing anywhere until the reading festival in 1980 when they were sort of added to the bill because ozzy osbourne was sick and uh you know they they said well you know we you know ozzy knew slate well and he, he said well what their people said, well, you, you've got to get saved, they're amazing. And, you know, they went on their own. They didn't have, you know, David Hill was packing it up. He was going to do, be a chauffeur. They didn't have transport laid on. They were almost sort of turned away at the gate. And, you know, Jim paints this fabulous picture of the forum sort of walking into Reading, holding their guitars like the last band in town. No one knowing who they were sort of thing. And then they get out there and, you know, do what they'd been doing for nearly 15 years at that point. And, of course... That showmanship, you know, Noddy's craft as a frontman, Dave Hill's craft as that sort of the person you can't take your eyes off. Yes, Flavor Flav or Bez. Dave Hill invented that. Absolutely. He he put both of it together. Slightly more of a player, but, you know, that that whole thing, (laughs) that his classic quote, uh, you write them and I'll sell them, that was there. And, of course, that gave them another decade which, you know, they wouldn't have had. And I think that's why, and of course with the Christmas record, why we know Slade in a way that we, the wider world doesn't know Sweet or Mud or the Rubettes or anyone like that. I get get the sense that you're really going to enjoy my chat with Will Hodgkinson about his new book, about shark pop in the 70s because that would have been your era. I'm fascinated by the fact that your mum worked in WH Smith when they sold records. When I was young, it was at the very, very, very tail end of selling music at Smith's and I used to go in and get CDs and cassettes. And In fact, I bought my first cassette from Smith's. And then you went to work for Virgin Our Price in Essex in the 90s uh, and then took redundancy and went to Keel. Yep. 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 I went to university at thirty one. No, my mother was absolutely horrified. I mean she just like you know, her view was get a job in retail so and that's it. And I adore retail. But, you know, that classic thing, the company I joined, I mean I joined as R Price in eighty four and it became Virgin R Price in the nineties. You know, Virgin came in just thinking, you know, R Price were a bunch of hippies which is ironic because obviously yes. Virgin made, made Virgin money in a bunch Yes, of that was the whole point of Virgin. It was hippies and bee bags. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. 
but then it became, you know, men with clipboards and things like that. And I don't get me wrong, I adore a clipboard. But that all happened, and it was just a bit like. And I remember thinking, you know, it's that moment where you're selling computer games and things. I'm thinking, this isn't, you know, Cars by Gary Newman or something. So I, that's when I thought, okay, this change is all happening. Here's an opportunity to to, to leave. And I say, my mother was horrified because it was like our price that's giving you a good career son and it's like well our price you know three years five years later disappeared you know where's our price now where's music retail now discuss so you know maybe if i'd realized at 18 that you could you know it was relatively easy if, if you'd been persistent to become you know a writer or something like that but i was very much southeast essex you you finished school and you went and got a job and that was it and that yeah cool and in a way, I'm so glad I did because it gives me a sort of slightly different perspective. So when I'm writing about a record, I can sort of see all the spines there. And I remember selling them or not selling them. And, you know, LPs that are seen now as some sort of cultural event. You know, I just remember being put in boxes and sent back because no one bought. I get the feeling you will have talked to David Hepworth about selling music and catalogue numbers because David worked in a record shop in the 70s, slightly older than you, uh, and he was the director of Smash Hits and The Word, The Long Lamented Word, uh, and you also went into magazines, uh, the deped of Record Collector. At a time in 2000, 2001, when internet piracy turned into legitimate downloading and iTunes came along and now we've got Spotify and there's no music retail. Could you, rather than go through that and you talk about this in your book, which I'd love to read, uh, Downbeat, the challenges facing the music industry in the 21st century, did you foresee the mass turn, vault fast, towards mass consumption of vinyl? Obviously we knew record collectors wanted the vinyl, but to get new releases put out on vinyl, could you foresee that? I think the short answer is absolutely not. You know, vinyl was, at that point, fetishised. I can't ever say that word, fetishised. And very much the, 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 the sort of final frontier of the people that had grown up with it. When I worked at Record Collector, there were sort of really big debates whether we should change it to music collector or CD collector or something like that. But, you know, there was still this absolute core of people and thankfully there were, who, you know, had this lifelong love affair with, with mainly the 70. I mean, it was a 7-inch that sort of kept it, and that whole northern scene and the dance scene that was around at that time was still there now. And then the sort of big collectors like Elvis people, Beatles people, things like that. Yeah. When I started work at Universal, you know, Paul Weller always had this thing that he, he had to have vinyl. He would always keep vinyl. And I remember one of his, he did an album called Fly on the Wall, and there was a limited thing called Pinups. Uh, not Pinups, it was a it was a parody of Pinups. Had him and Kate Moss on the cover. I can't, can't remember the title. Oh, no, it's before my time. But we went, he wanted it on vinyl, and I remember it was almost like, you know, you, you go go and see Dave on the corner with a press and get it done in the afternoon, you know, for 500 copies. I mean, now, you, you know, if someone said, well, it's going to take you X amount, everyone's going to be trying to get to the lathes and the pressing plants and things like that. I, I think it's wonderful. You know, I think it's fantastic. But I think the way that vinyl is now part of the armory of listening, if you like, and you have, I 
mean, you know, streaming is phenomenal because I haven't heard a band new or old and then suddenly I have, you know, and that wouldn't have happened before. I would have wondered what they sounded like and possibly gone and bought them if I could have been bothered or if I'd remembered. But immediately, oh, I wonder what X sounds like. Oh, now I know. And, I, and that is so exciting and I think has opened up this this great sort of wide range of people's interests and, and you know, kids of today tm listen so much broader than we did but they don't listen as deep as we did so it's not a problem to hear you know we're not governed by the music mags and and what we're being told Uh, and i'm sure lots of people you interview say a similar thing yeah but you know i knew all the names of the four bass players as a sort of badge of honor i felt like i had to know that now people won't even know who you know, may, may see a name and that's it. I really like the track and not worry that, you know, this person doesn't like someone in the Smith, so you can't listen to both or anything mm. like that. No, I, I hope that changes. I hope people will look back. I mean, there are obviously these faceless bands. What is Maroon 5, if not an Adam Levine solo project? Glass Animals, the biggest rock band in Britain. I couldn't name any of their... I know the drummer had an accident, but Dave Bailey is, to all intents and purposes, Glass Animals. There is no such thing as a rock band at the top level anymore uh, coming through because the culture has changed. And would that I could go through that with you, Daryl Easley, but we have to talk about these bands. You have said that two-word bands are great. There's something about a two-word band. There are some uh, anomalies here. Sparks, Genesis, Slade, Chic, Black Eyed Peas... They are all bands which have one or three words, and the link is, Daryl Easley, you've written books about all of them. Uh, so I'll quickly, uh-huh. I'll quickly do the roll call, and then we'll pick and choose what to talk about. Talent is an okay. asset, about Sparks, mm-hmm. Without Frontiers, about Peter Gabriel, Everybody Dance, Chic, and The Politics of Disco. Uh, and then uh, a biography of the Black Eyed Peas. Which was the book where you found out the most in the research? Without a doubt, the Chic book because that was very uncharted territory when I wrote it. Um, That was sort of 2002 to 2004. There was a real, you know, recall. I mean, now Nile is a sort of national treasure and, and, you know, everyone knows Nile and loves Nile and reveres him and all of that. But then it was a bit like, why are you writing a book on Sheik? Almost like, you know, I said I was going to write a book on Boney M or something, Mm. which again would be an incredibly fascinating story. But... That stuff, you you really, really had to sort of seek it out. That it, you know, it wasn't known. You know, this was long before Nile wrote a book or anything like that. And, you know, find out the connection with him and Sesame Street and him and the Apollo Theatre and him and Luther Vandross and how he and Luther Vandross were sort of, you know, ran around New York together. And you had that whole thing where you, you almost couldn't believe it. He was like sort of so zealot-like, you know, he was in hospital on an acid trip the night that Andy Warhol came in and been shot. Last Time Free was written about when he was sort of beaten up as a Black Panther and all these things he then took and put into to Chic songs. And I think making the connections there was just fascinating because, you know, I love, if there's a group I love, it's The Fall, I mentioned them again, but they did an album called New Facts Emerge and I love it when new facts emerge and I think that fact that none of us know everything 
there's always you know every day's a school day and other great cliches mm-hmm. hearing all that for the first time and finding out and this book was just on the cusp of the internet if you like it was you know there, there was a lot of sort of legwork that needed to be done but i mean there's still always legwork to be done with a book but you know some of the fundamental things have been removed because you can find out you can see that newspaper piece about this and that because they're all there online or you can find it. So I'm sure you're hearing other people saying this, but, you know, going to New York to interview Nile, which I'd, I'd never been to New York. I've been wow. to America, but New York. And you sort of, you know, that whole thing when you first go to New York anyway, it's yes. like, Christ alive, it's New York, I'm in a film set, you know, etc. And then going to his flat and interviewing him then, at a time where I was a bit like, hey man, you know, what are you doing? Why, why are you interested? Why do you want to write a book on me? And talking about being, you know, anonymous. He said, I can go into any restaurant in the world and hear, you know, we are family playing, or I can hear, you know, good times, but no one knows who I am. And you could see that sort of rankled a little bit, but he was sort of okay with it. And obviously in, in the intervening years, he's made sure that everyone knows who he is. And, and it's, you know, quite amazing how the chic brand has become... Yeah. But it's the best party in the world. You could pay a million dollars to hear all those songs. And the way that he just segues good times into Rapper's Delight, and you realise, oh, yep. you invented rap, almost invented rap as well. Um, in yep. all the, all the, 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 so many people invented rap. Uh, cool Herc invented rap. Oh, yeah. Uh, he has his link with Miss Ross. Uh, you yep. wrote an extended essay for the V&A exhibition about the Supremes. Um, I did. Is, well, here's the link uh, to link two of your books. Is Beyonce not the incarnation of Diana Ross for several reasons? Yes, is the short answer to that. Good. We'll, uh, we'll move on. No, we can't move on. Um, yeah, no, I was <laughs> just... I, because it came out of the girl band, um, the, yep. the, the biggest star, the, the money spinner, a famous yep. marriage... Um, I suppose I should ask, were you dealing with the Supremes work when you were head of catalogue at Universal and working on the Motown, uh, if I can call it, sweating the brand? <laughs> I always make sure you're sweating onions. Uh, you're sweating green onions. Yeah, except good. Except um, I certainly put out Supremes records. I mean, I had a... I always come from the purest place, and though I work for sort of commercial behemoths, if you if you like, I know as a fan and an end user and all of those what I would like to see. And I think that thing is, you know, when you when you put out records, you know, you work with the best people who will also sort of share that vision to help you do that. So there, you know, it's a brilliant collectors out there. There's brilliant aficionados out there. You know, and you, you bring them together. Um, the Supremes exhibition came out from when I was the head of Motown Catalog, um, and it was a bit like, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, you can write as well. You, you've done this and you can do that. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, why not? Let's let's do it. You know, uh, and that's lovely. And I'm I'm you know very lucky and very privileged to sometimes be in those positions because I can I don't know, join dots up, but. I mean, that was such a that pleasure because it was sort of at the beginning. Stuff had happened before, but like V&A um, and museums realising that actually pop was a commodity to be able to exhibit in that way you could with 
Christian Dior or, you know, famous painters or, or whatever. And I think the wow factor, I mean, I had very little to do with the actual setup of the exhibition. I was a touring exhibition, but that, that wow factor of seeing, you know, the three Supremes dresses was the same. I think the v later did a, um, a postmodern exhibition. And then they really got into it. And then the Bowie came and the Floyd came and all that. But when I saw Grandmaster Flash's 1210s for the first time, I, I absolutely gasped because that, to see it where he'd worn it all down, the, the stop button and everything, it was like, this is amazing. And I think the Supreme thing was the start of that, showing there is a cr- tremendous wow factor in, in seeing these artifacts of the, the sort of recent past that were seen by millions more people than, you know, say a, a, a Dior dress or something like that. Rock and roll is of pensionable age now. If it yep. if it was born in the 1950s, it is of, it could have retired by now. But, <laughs> but the way that, like, Beethoven's Ninth can still astound people, Rite of Spring and then kind of Revolvers, Tomorrow Never Knows, yep. can enthrall people. Rock and roll still has a reason to live it, or it's turned into very identity politics, which we're not going to go into. And yet, through it all, Sparks are still performing. Did you get to go to, I think this was contemporaneous with your book, when they did all the albums at yes. the O2? At the O2 or Hammersmith? Yeah. One of them. Well, no, it was at the, no, it was at the O2. I think it was called the O2 then. It was the, or was it the Academy in Islington? I mean, basically, what? set up as the marquee a few years before. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Sparks, I mean, bless them, I could fill out the O2. But, um, although, prove me wrong, cats. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, Sparks and Audacity go hand in hand. And I, I think that thing where this was the era of when, you know, Brian Wilson really started by doing Pet Sounds as a piece and then suddenly everyone was doing their classic albums. And Sparks manages to who's British and fabulous, uh, sort of, you know, slightly, I mean, she's, you know, of a, uh, I say this with all due respect to her, she's of an age, but she wasn't like the rabid Sparks fan as a kid. And she's managed them since Little Beethoven, where they've sort of gone from strength to strength. And she said, well, why don't you do all your albums? You've done, yeah, you know, I think it was 21 at that point. Yes. And of course, the, the, the thing with Sparks is they will try anything. They will do anything. You know, they, they, they are complete artists in that sense. And to go back and play, you know, your first album from 1971 in full, you know, when they hadn't played any of the tracks from it for about 20, 30 years, it is so Sparksian. And I went for three nights. I went to um, Kimono My House, because obviously it's Kimono My House and it's, you know, possibly the most well, important record in their career. And I went to Big Beat, which I absolutely love, 1976. And I actually four nights, and I went to a record called Interior Design, which was in the 80s, which nobody was at, which was brilliant. I mean, that's why I loved it. It was like you went on, and the final one was Number One in Heaven. And Number One in Heaven, you just couldn't move. It was one of the first times they'd done it all as a piece. And just one of the great pop albums of our time. And that fact, you've got the live drums with the synth. You know, what Giorgio Morona did so well, oh, Keith Borsi. And it, and it was just me and Miss Elisa were pressed up against the back wall. I mean, you, you, you couldn't have got any more people in that room. And Bobby Gillespie, I remember, was dancing in front of me. 
low wattage pop anecdotes. And then I went to see interior design. <laughs> there was about 40 of us in there. Mm. And, you know, you had the full room to do it. And that's the thing with Sparks. You know, it's like, you know, if you don't like this one, another one will be along in a minute. They and are the brilliant. They're, fa- they're still fantastic. Doing it. Still going 50 years on. Still, the brothers mm. haven't fallen out. And the recent documentary will have given them a Philip. A lot of what is going on in rock seems to be legacy building. Kate Bush and Elton John, and we've got a Madonna docu- um, biopic coming, and we've already had the Queen one. What I suppose I'll ask is, uh, will there be a Peter Gabriel biopic? <laughs> it is a fascinating story. You know, it's a truly fascinating story in the sense that he was so young. You know, he left Genesis and made Salisbury Hill talking about his sort of t- turning his back on success and all those things, and he was 25. Mm. You know, in one sense, in pop at that time, that was old. And now you think, you know, most bands aren't really underway till they're 25. And he'd been in Genesis, and they'd finally got somewhere near where they wanted to be, and he left. And then, you know, the term world music is very charged and full of issues. I call it global music. Global music. Yeah. You know, one of the people that, that is responsible for us knowing about it is Peter Gabriel. And, you know... Then there's Sledgehammer, you know, US number one hit maker. And then now, you know, the third of his life sort of in global politics. You know, it's a phenomenal thing. I'm not sure if it's interesting enough for a bit biopic. I think there isn't, there's certainly, well, there might be a bit of sex. There certainly isn't any drugs. I mean, famously, you know, he, he was very, very straight. And he made all those weird records and wore all those masks. So you can only wonder. Uh, if you've taken drugs as well, if you've done acid and did all that, wow! I love, I love that album of his, Peter Gabriel. Yes, but which, which one? one? Well, that's where <laughs> that's where the book will come in, Without Frontiers, which I'll certainly read. Um, annoyingly, we're coming to the end, so I just wanted you to spend two minutes just naming some of your favourite critics and music books that you go back to on your shelf, time and again. I think um, someone I absolutely love, and there, there were. I mean, Record Collector for me, and it, to end up writing there was, was such a, a pleasure, but among many places I write, but uh, Mark Patris there, I I just admired his writing so much because he had such a blend of passion and fact together, and I adore that, and I, you know, fortunately I became his friend, and he commissioned me initially to do the, a piece on Chic for Mojo Collections, which then became the book so I you know I owe Mark a lot but he's just written a book on glam and I actually think that is the that should be the set text Ooh, what's it called it's called uh, glam when superstars ruled the world it's on uh, omnibus I mean Mark would be really good to have on your show because he's, uh, I'll give him a message or if you give him a message for me that would be yeah, fun. No, please do because okay. he, he's a really three-dimensional writer I I like Zoe Howe's writing I think Zoe brings you know, you were talking a lot with Will Birch about the feel goods, and obviously yep. I'm from Essex. I live in Southend. I grew up under the sound of the feel goods. One of my first ever concerts were them, and everything. And the legend was there. And Zoe, you know, is only in her early forties. She wasn't, you know, she's not an old white bloke from from Southend to write about them. And I think she brought and the first Wilco book, but a rock and roll gentleman book about Lee Brillo. She brought this this beautiful extra dimension to it. A sort of magic realism, if you like. 
man uh, that was in there. And over the older, so I mean, Sylvie Simmons every time is is a huge pleasure. Uh, I love uh, when Danny Eccleston gets his full flow on, and I think Mick Middles and Terry Staunton. I think Terry just that sort of. Uh, I do like a good sense of humour. God, that's you've given me a long reading list, as I should. I'm just going to go out to get the new record collector. Do you know who's on the cover? Uh, the new record collector is the Beatles. By some strange, if you got it last month, you'd have got the Island Life, where I did a huge interview with Chris Blackmore, which was, which was wonderful. Ah, wicked. Yes, who's just put his book out before Molly? We have, didn't even have time to go into Decca Records. That is how broad Daryl Easy, your own catalogue, is. Whatever happened to Slade? Is out on Omnibus. SFOB.co.uk to get easily like Sunday morning. <laughs> 